I said last week, if you don't like the rock, you get the cello the next week, huh? Last week, we're 100 decibels at the board, I bet, huh? <laughs> this week, oh, bless you with many children, except, <laughs> oops. <laughs> to the person behind you or something. <laughs> When I was in high school, I was in a play. Actually, I was in a bunch of plays in high school. And one of the plays I was in was Fiddler on the Roof. <clears throat> and I got a chance to be the, the, the old guy, Tevya. And uh, it's actually a, a physical thing. You have to, like, work out almost to, to... I know those of you who are jocks are going, yeah, right. But it really is. It's a three-hour play. And in that three hours, I think you're on stage all of, like, 12 minutes or something like that. I don't remember exactly the period of time. But it's a significant amount of time that you are on stage. And I remember thinking about working through the lines and trying to memorize the, the serious quantities of lines that you have when you're playing you know, Tevya, Fiddler on the Roof, you know, if I were a rich man, that, that guy. Uh, that there's just no way. You can't memorize them. You have to almost be the guy. You can't memorize that quantity of lines. You have to just be the guy. I, I remember distinctly uh, so much being the guy that something happened. I had this, this cart. It was like a glorified wheelbarrow. And it had uh, these, these uh, milk containers, you know, like the old milk containers in them. And somebody had put them in wrong. And I put my cart down. And I walked away over here to do what typically Tevi does, talk, talk and think to himself. And the cart tipped up. And the milk cartons were going to roll off the stage. It was just going to be a disaster. And I, in character, I just walked over there, took care of it calmly, and just said, Oi, they don't make those like they used to. I just remember at that moment, I felt like, yeah, Hollywood, man, I'm big. <laughs> um, but uh, I remember before the first performance, we only did three performances. It was a Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night. And before the Thursday night performance, I remember driving my little Chevette. There you go. There's a sexy car for you. Uh, I was driving it into town. I lived five miles out of town in Hibbing, Minnesota. And I remember just exactly where I was when I thought this. 100, 100 feet or so from this one corner, I can, if I drive by it, I know exactly where it was. And the thought hit me, like they do in a lot of your lives. When you come to the one of those defining moments in your life, you know, granted, they're not 90 degree turns, but they might be 5 to 8 to 10 degrees. And I remember at that moment saying, if I make it through this, if I live through tonight, I'll be a different person. I'll be a person who has a lot more confidence. And it was true. I made it through that night. I lived through that evening. And I did come out on, on the other side a more confident, a different person. Not necessarily for good or bad, but just different. Jesus Christ, what we're going to look at today is a defining moment in his ministry. In fact, it is one of the times when I hope it makes you just kind of quiver inside with, with excitement as we take a look at this. Open your Bibles up to John chapter 12. We're going to take a look at... Uh, a passage which, like I say, is a defining moment in Jesus' ministry. John chapter 12. <clears throat> and we're in the last, oops, back up one. We're in the last uh, couple weeks of this section, what we've called uh, the Gospel of John part 2. And what we call this one is, who do you say that I am? Meeting Jesus Christ through his signs and ministry. And you see it only goes through 1250. We're going through 1236 uh, this week. I believe we finish up next week. And we, we, we uh, jettison then into chapter 13. 
and which is going to take us the last eight days of Jesus' ministry, basically, to the end of the book. And, and so we'll start a whole new section there. But here he is, he's unveiling who he is, a little bit, little bit, little bit at a time. It comes to a pinnacle of, of unveiling last week when he goes into downtown Jerusalem on a donkey while people are yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. When he does that, there's no doubt anymore, he's the king of Israel. He lets, the, he lets the crowd shout out and have a great time, but he's holding a little something from them. It's just a minor something that the agenda is way off. Their agenda is, you can just hear this crowd, trash the Romans, trash the Romans. Yes, yes, put your foot upon their head and trash the Romans. You can hear this. I just made that up. But the, there would be some kind of a murmur going. That's what they were pumped about doing. They wanted a political takeover of Jerusalem starting there and it was just going to shock the Roman world. Oh boy. And Jesus let them party anyway. It was we saw last week on his, his uh, road into Jerusalem. He let them party even though they had the wrong agenda. This week he's going to let them know what the agenda is. And that same crowd that on Palm Sunday is yelling, Yes! You the man! Translated, Hosanna! Blessed be the, name who, uh, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord is going to yell on Friday, Crucify him! Crucify him! And there's going to be some little problems with, with uh, along the way here. So let's take a look at this. John chapter 12, starting in verse 20. It says, now there were some Greeks. Now a Greek is someone that could be from Greece, possibly. But it would also be anyone who's just not a Jew. They would possibly just call him a Greek. So that's where that would have come from. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. These people were not, yes, converts totally to Judaism, but they wanted to worship God. Uh, if, you, if you read in Acts and other places, they call them God-fearers. They weren't Jewish people yet. They hadn't signed the dotted line. They, if they were men, they hadn't been circumcised, which was a major obstacle for people of that time. And they just they didn't want to go through that, but they wanted to worship God, and so they'd go to these feasts. They couldn't go all the way into the temple. They could only go to the outer court. They came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee with the request. And I love their request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Isn't that a great request? That's just cool. I'd like to see the creator of the universe, please. (laughs) Philip went to tell his brother Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. So there's the story so far. you got these Greeks, they come. They're coming on the feast. They, they see this crowd. They go, they find Andrew. Say, Andrew, we would like to see Jesus. Or as if you got the King James with them, they said, we would see Jesus. That sounds cool, doesn't it? We would see, we would see Jesus. They, and, and, and Andrew then says, well, let me talk to, let me talk to my bro. He ta- or excuse me, uh, Philip says, let me talk to my brother, Andrew. And Andrew and Philip, they go to tell Jesus. Now, the interesting thing about this is, that's the last we hear about these Greek people. Just, they're just kind of gone. So, <laughs> I don't understand the whole thing. And I would love, this is one of my questions that is not answered in the Bible. The Bible has given you everything you need to know, but not everything you want to know. And here's one of the things I want to know. Where are the Greeks? They, where'd they go? They were here, they asked a question... And then did, did Andrew and Philip just turn around and ask Jesus, or did they go somewhere and those dudes are just they're probably still standing there somewhere in Jerusalem? Uh, what happened? I don't know. We don't know. But this event, the Greeks coming, asking Philip, who asks Andrew, and they go and both ask Jesus, triggers something. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus replied. Now, just stop right there. It doesn't say Jesus says. 
It said Jesus replied, which means they ask him a question. There's some Greek dudes, they want to talk to you. Jesus replies back to that with something that doesn't really answer their question at all. In fact, he's never going to answer that question. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Okay, didn't say anything about the Greek dudes, but this is big. This is huge. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What have we been seeing all the time in the Gospel of John? What's the phrase that's come up over and over? Anybody? What about when he talks about the time? What's about the time? Not yet. Look at this. John chapter 2. He's speaking to his, his mother. And his mother says, you need to do a miracle here. And he says, dear woman, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. I can't do something that will push it over the top and everybody will know exactly who I am. Time is not now. John chapter 7, his brothers tell him, Jesus' brothers tell him, why don't you come to the feast? A good politician, if you're trying to raise a campaign here, there's a certain way you do it. Let us help you. Let us be your campaign guys. We'll bring you downtown to the feast and you can just let yourself be known. What does Jesus say to that? The right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. In other words, other, if you're trying to do that kind of campaign, that's fine. That's not what I'm trying to do. The time is not right. He says, at, at, well, he finally does go to the feast on his own terms, not up front and, and with a big you know, parade and all that, but he comes kind of quietly. And then he starts teaching and he starts raising some hackles. And then this crowd tries to seize him but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his time had not yet come. And then he says in John chapter 8, as he continues on in these discussions, now people are really hot. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings are put. Yet, no one seized him. Why? Because his time had not yet come. And what does Jesus just get done saying? Jesus just gets done saying, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be revealed. Oh, oh, that... I hope that just kind of, Mufasa, ha, ha, ha. It's that moment. It's just like, oh, my goodness, it's here. You know, I, I, had, a, I had a dream once. Oh, this was just as real as anything. I had a dream that was the second coming of Christ. I don't know what your theology says about the second coming of Christ. Don't care, quite honestly. But it was happening. I mean, it was like, dude, it's really here. The sky was lighting up, and all kinds of weird things were happening, and Tim LaHaye was selling books, and um, it was awesome. It was an amazing dream, and I woke up from it, and I was bummed. I was like, oh, you've got to be kidding. It didn't really happen. This is Jesus saying, it's here. The, the hour that I've been talking about forever, it's here, and it's coming. This was what, what was going to happen. He says, the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The Son of Man is going to be glorified. This is a direct response or a, de- a direct uh, a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 52. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. This prophecy is written hundreds of years before Christ's birth. And he's now going to fulfill it. Now, Jesus goes on. He explains uh, what this is going to look like. He says, the Son of Man, the hour has come. 
and I'm going to be glorified. What's that going to look like? He says, I tell you the truth, John 12, 24, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. What's he saying here? He's saying, he's giving them a hint. He's going to come out later and hit them with a club upside the head. But right now he's giving a hint saying, I'm teaching a little parable here. If you take one grain and you put it in the ground, it becomes a whole stock. And there's all kinds of seeds that come as a result. In other words, something's going to happen to me. My glorification here is going to result in blessing to many, many people. That's what's going to happen. But if it does, it produces many seeds. That's what the hour is going to look like for Jesus. He's going to have to die. What does the hour look like for us? Verse 25, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. He's saying basically this. Same thing that happens to me, same thing as I get planted in the ground, and as I, as I die physically, as I... Uh, get rooted up. That'll be a benefit to many people. The same thing's going to happen to you, disciples, and to you, Hope Community Church. It says here, whoever loves his life will lose it. If you love your life, you're hanging on to it, and you want to see who dies with the most toys, and who can rise above everybody else, and whatever your goal in life is, that that's the thing you're going to hang on to. Jesus says, you know, at the end of the day, if you're going to lose it. You're going to lose it on two counts. Number one, as you keep climbing that ladder, whatever ladder it is, and for all of us, it's different. Whatever your ladder is. It might be trying to get to the top of the corporate ladder. It, it, it might be trying to get top of the relationship ladder. It might be having the most kids or being the best dad or mom or having the most money or having a cabin or whatever. All those things, by the way, are good. Nothing wrong with those things. Right? Go for it. But if you, that's the goal of your life is to, is to climb that ladder and that's what you make at the single point of your life, when you get to the top of that ladder, two things will happen. Number one, you'll realize that the ladder is leaned against the wrong wall. What in the Sam Hill am I doing up here? Well, why am I here? Well, this is a stupid wall. And the second one, the second thing is you will, you will um, when you look at God, God will say, Nice four-wheel drive truck. What have you done with what I've told you? What have you done with, with all that I've told you about my son? And you say, well, nothing, but i got a really cool four-by-four. Whoever loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Here's God's math. There it is. And actually, it's not that complicated at all. It's really simple. If you worship, go to the next one, worship this life, that equals a loss of real life. If you worship this life, and you know what? This is almost like something you've got to put on a little piece of paper and every morning read it. Okay, today I'm not going to worship this life. Okay, what am I going to do? I'm going to follow Christ and I'm not going to live my life just for me. Okay, good. Because the second part of that is if you follow Jesus at a loss of personal advantage, uh, possible advantage in this life, that'll equal real life. If you're climbing that wall of, of whatever it is, Jesus is at the bottom there and he's saying, you know what? Jump off. And in fact, jump off backwards. I'll catch you. He says, you don't know what it's like, the ultimate trust fall. If you've done that little crazy thing where you fall into somebody's arms and four or five people catch you. 
That's exhilaration, he'll say. You want joy? Drop off the ladder into my arms. That's real life. So every day as you're climbing that ladder, lean back, man. Lean back. Close your eyes. Take the nesty plunge. You don't even know what that is, do they? You don't know the nesty plunge. You know the nesty plunge. Yeah, whatever. Uh, lean back. Lean back and drop into the arms of Christ. He will catch you. That's what real life is. Jesus is saying that. Now he continues on. And this is amazing. It's amazing that this is put in here. It says, now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Now, that word troubled, does anybody, does anybody, uh, does that ring a bell with anybody? The word troubled. Now my heart is troubled. Where else did we see that? No, I heard it. Somebody? Lazarus. Exactly. Twice in that account in John chapter 11, twice we saw Jesus being troubled. Remember we looked at that word and that word basically means he snorts like a horse. He loses it. He's shaking. He's agitated. In that case, he's weeping. This one, he's just really, really troubled. And he says, now my heart is troubled. Now don't read that like it's not true. Jesus is saying, my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? He's thinking through the temptation he's going through. The hour has come. It's time. It's go time. And he's saying, should I say, you know, Jesus has this thing about being God. He sees the future. He knows what that's going to look like. And he's saying, you know, I have this temptation right now to say, "Uh -uh. uh-uh, uh-uh, mm-mm, not going to do it. Save me from this hour. He says, he says, should I say that? And he says, no. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. The number one thing on Jesus' do list was to die and to die a special way. This way. That's the number one thing. It's for this very reason. Yeah, he came for other reasons too. To heal, to show that the kingdom of God was coming, to teach about the spirit, to teach about uh, who the father was, all these different things. But the number one thing on his do list was, no, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. And then he, he prays the right prayer. Father, glorify your name. Knowing that that prayer for the Father to glorify His name and Jesus' comfort, physical comfort, were in direct opposition. It wasn't going to happen. Dude, do you pray like that? As things come into your life as the number one thing, God, I know this is here. And boy, it'd be great if it weren't here. But if it glorifies you, God, and if you're going to get glory out of it, then bring it on. <laughs> I don't know if I'm there all the time, you know? That's what Jesus prays. Glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven, then, then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. In the incarnation and life of Jesus, God had seen his name glorified, but he was really going to get glory as Jesus was going to go to the cross. Now this crowd, the crowd that's there, hears the voice and they say that it thundered. So the cloud that was there and heard it said, uh, and, and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to them. Now, I got one word to describe these, this crowd. Weenies. Think about this for a second. Jesus there, he's talking. All of a sudden from the heavens come, what does he say? I have glorified it and will glory it again. And they go, whoa, must be going to storm. <laughs> or maybe it was angels. Maybe you've talked to people and maybe you're one of those people who says, you know, 
I'll tell you what, I'll follow Christ if he just would make himself known. Stand right in front of me and say, I am Jesus. No, you won't. No, you won't. Then the dude, oh, I glorified it. Oh, it must be weather. <laughs> they, they, they didn't do it. They didn't. The crowd that's there, just excuse it off and try to explain it and try to give some scientific, why did that happen? John Calvin has something cool to say about this. He doesn't use the word weenies, but pretty close. <clears throat> he uses the words monstrous, which is better. It was, tr- it was truly monstrous that the assembled multitude were unmoved by so evident a miracle. Some are so deaf that they hear as a confused sound what God had distinctly pronounced. God does not have bad diction, by the way. Okay. Um, others are less dull of caring but yet take away much from the majesty of the divine voice by pretending that it was an angel who spoke. So they heard the words. They couldn't deny it, but it couldn't have been, couldn't have been God Almighty. But the same thing is practiced every day. For God speaks plainly enough in the gospel, in which is also displayed, by, displayed the power and energy of the Spirit, which ought to shake heaven and earth. But many are as little affected by the doctrine, as if only as if it only produced from a mortal man, and others consider the word of God to be confused and barbarous, as if nothing else than thunder. But a question arises, did the voice, did that voice sound from heaven without any profit or advantage? I reply, what the evangelist with John, the, the writer of the gospel, here ascribes to the multitude belongs only to a part of them. For there were some besides the apostles who did not interpret it so badly. But the evangelist intended to point out briefly what is commonly done in the world, and that is that the greater part of men, while they hear God, do not hear him, though he speak plainly and distinctly. John Calvin also said that, if, you know, that, that, that the world has such a way put blinders on your eyes that if they were removed for a second, it would be as foolish to say I don't believe in God as to say I don't believe in matter or I don't believe in gravity. Or I believe that the earth is flat while well, the earth actually is flat. But, um, the, you know, something like that, or cats are good, or it would be a foolish thing <laughs> to think. All right, so it would say if, if you could just get the blinders removed for you for a second, it would be clear. Oh, God is there. You, you, it's obvious. God is there. It's clear. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare, scream, shout the glory of God. If you're up in the boundary waters, just take a look at the stars and then say there's no God. It, it's, it's foolish. It's foolish. And that's what Calvin's saying here. And that's what the crowd does. They dismiss it. You're going to find that we don't like the crowd. The crowd is not so good. Okay, now Jesus says back to them, the voice was for your benefit, not mine, obviously. Jesus does not need a voice, an audible voice, to hear his own father speak to him. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But... When I am lifted up from the earth, excuse me, but I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And a couple things right there. He's saying, when I am lifted up from the earth, I'm going to die. He says, when I die and am lifted up in the ascension of Christ, the resurrection, the ascension of Christ, when that happens, guess what's going to happen? All men will come to myself. Ooh, there's the key. All men. Where are the Greeks? They're in the all men. Not just Jewish people. All men. I don't know how many people here are of Jewish descent. My guess is not many. All men and women. All will be drawn to him. He tried to, 
He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. He was clearly stating here that he was going to die. Now remember the crowd. The crowd is the one who just hours before had yelled, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Yes, we're going to trash the Romans. Now there's this dying thing coming in and they're starting to shift their opinion a little bit. The crowd spoke up, verse 34. We've heard from the law, the Old Testament, that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? What are you, nuts? It's not what we, what we learned in our, our Bible readings of the Old Testament. If you're the Christ, you're not here to die. Christ's don't lose. Christ's win. Messiah set people free. They don't die. You, what is with you? They're, they're looking back to the promise in, 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 uh, that was given to David. King David. Promise in 2 Samuel says, To King David, God speaks, When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. They're saying, don't you understand? You, and you're the one who rode in on a donkey. Don't you remember from a few verses before, we were yelling, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, from John chapter 12, 13 through 15. Wait a minute. What do you mean you're going to die? It's ludicrous talk. Now, the interesting thing here is how Jesus answers them. From here on out in this gospel, Jesus does not answer very many questions anymore. You can ask, but you're going to get the answer that Jesus wants you to get. And here's the question. The question faced to Jesus is, how can you possibly be the Christ and say you're going to die? He could explain that theologically. He doesn't do it at all. Listen to what he says. Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. Whoa. That may sound poetic. That is not poetic. That is toe-to-toe. They're asking him, you can't be the Christ. And he's saying, you know what? Time for questioning is over. Read the first 11 chapters of the Gospel of John if you want questions answered. We're done now. I'm downtown Baghdad. I've come down here. I say who I am and I'm going to die. And you know what? It's now time for decision. It's now time for trust. Are you going to place your trust in me or not? That's where we're at. Jesus has said, there's a lot of time for processing. There's a lot of time for working things through. We're done. Today you are at a T in the road. You've come up. You can't go straight. You have to go either left or you have to go right. One or the other. Which is it going to be? Are you going to trust me or are you not? What? are you going to do? And I hope we often talk about this. We, we think there's different phases in the, in the spiritual journey. You may be over here at a point where you're not even sure if God's there. In fact, if, you, if he is there, you're pretty mad at him for all the things that he's allowed in your life. Maybe you got a, a fist and you're shaking it at God. And you, you're sitting here and you look great. But that's inside, that's where you're at. You're just angry at God if he's there and doubting whether or not he's even there. And, and you don't have a whole lot of interest necessarily. And you may be sitting here. But that's what's really going on in the inward working of your heart. Then God does some things, maybe to break you, or maybe to encourage you, I don't know, but somehow you move from that phase over to a point where you have 
a ton of questions. And they start to become different kinds of questions. Not, you will answer me, but God, I just don't quite get this now. How does this work? What is the Bible all about? Who is Jesus Christ? What's your character? Why did you allow me as a young child to be sexually abused? Those kind of questions. But they're spoken with a different heart. That moves from the questioning phase to what we call the processing phase, where all of a sudden now you're processing this stuff. It's like, huh. Okay, that, I don't have total answers on this, but God seems to be more reliable. God seems to be who, who he claims to be. I'm starting to see that. A lot of you are in this journey somewhere. And we hope hope is a place where wherever you're at in your journey, we're, we want to encourage you to go further. Uh, we want to push you on that way, but we're not here to shove you. We want you wherever you're at. That moves, though, from you don't always stay in the processing phase. You move to the T in the road where you say, you know what? I don't have all my questions answered exactly, but I'm at that point where I need to make a decision. I need to decide, is Christ who he says he is, and will I follow him? Will I, just like in the baptism chamber, will I trust Christ as Savior, and will I follow him as Lord? Those two questions. And you know, it's not words. It's not words you speak. It's a trust. It, it's, it's treasuring Christ above all else. It's a turning from something to something, and that something is Christ. And that's what you want to call a faith commitment. You want to call it, that's when I believed, accepted Christ, was born again. Whatever phrase you want to use, doesn't matter. But at that point in time, something happens fundamentally. At that point in time, your sins are forgiven, and new life comes into you. Because you, you come to a point to trust Christ. From there, you move on to a lifetime of, of trusting and obeying and processing and still questioning and asking God. There's a lifetime of these kind of things. Wherever you're at in your journey, I want to close with a question this morning. Are you at a point where you are going to, verse 36, put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light? Jesus said the question or the, the, the time of processing is over. In fact, so much so, if you finish that verse in verse 36, it says, when he had finished speaking... Jesus left and hid himself from them. I'm done talking. You think about it. Think what I've said. Process it. So let me close with that question. Are you at a point right now where you're ready to put your trust in the light, in Christ? I don't care where you're at in your journey. Some of you just to trust Christ would be from taking your, your closed fist towards God and changing that to, God, I'm willing to at least accept the possibility that you're good and that you're great. Some of you might need to move from the, the, the uh, questioning and huge questions to the time where you're just processing it, working it with through someone, saying, you know what? I want to meet with Cor or someone else in the church and say, I want to start to really think about this stuff. Some of you have been processing for a long time. And today's the day, March 4th, 2007. Today's the day where you say, you know what? Today I'm going I'm to sign, I'm going to say I do to Jesus. Today's the day I'm going to sign the contract. Jesus will become a follower of you. Today could be that day. Some of you have already made that decision, but things have come into your life so much so that you could slip easily right into this crowd and be the ones who in, in six to seven short days are yelling from Hosanna, Hosanna to crucify him. There's things that have come into your life and oh yes, you look good on the outside and all that kind of stuff, but inside you're just filled with bitterness towards God and Jesus today is saying, you know what, you're going to trust me. Are you going to put your trust in me in spite of your circumstances? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, that is, that is the good news of the gospel. That in you, we can be forgiven. In you, 
we can have new life. So Lord, I pray for us, no matter where we're at in our journey, God, that you would just move us further. We really ask for that, Lord. God, I pray for people in this room who are struggling with real, significant questions regarding you. Jesus, only you can answer those. Only you can answer those. There's only words that I have, but you speak to hearts. And Holy Spirit, we want to ask by, by your Spirit in this room, even right now, you'd be speaking to hearts. Lord God, there may be some in this room for the first time in their life, this morning, they want to speak directly to you and say, Jesus Christ, today, today I bend the knee of my life to you. I take you on as my Savior. I take you on as my Lord and I want to follow you as much as I know how. Today could be the day for some of them. And so, Lord God, if there are people in this room who that's where they're at this morning, right now, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray you give them the courage to bend their knee to you. You draw them to yourself, Jesus, for your glory. Lord, if there are some of us who maybe years ago have done that, but for whatever reason, we've got these things going on in our lives that cause us to to stumble away, Lord Jesus, would you make that known to us? Holy Spirit, just penetrate our minds and let us know anything that stands in our way that we would not be putting our trust in you. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.